Hello, my friends, and welcome to this, our uh, very special series on biblical archaeology and biblical history here at One Fellowship Church. We are very fortunate this evening to have with us uh, the one and the only Professor Kazuyuki Hayashi. Kaz is a biblical archaeologist. He actually just got back from Israel a few weeks ago where he was working on a dig there. He is currently a doctoral candidate at Baylor University. Kaz holds degrees uh, from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Old Testament Semitic Languages and in Biblical and Near Eastern Archaeology. He has taught for the Moody Bible Institute as well as for Baylor University, and he has served um, in excavations at the Be'er Jubaitin, uh, which is the Biblical Bethel, as well as Tel Abel Beit Macha. We are very fortunate to have Kaz here with us for this uh, four-part series for the entire month on biblical history and biblical archaeology. So, without further ado, I present to you Professor Kazuyuki Hayashi. Well, that was a very generous introduction by Nick, um, Dr. Wurst here. And Nick and I, I just want to say, you know, we go way back. So, I was a very nervous student applying for different programs to study at and was praying with my wife. We were living in downtown Chicago and we were saying like, you know, Lord, where's the next step? And I applied widely. I applied to schools in um, the East Coast, the West Coast, some programs in Britain, you know, um, and uh, there are different places that I looked into. And when I was interviewed with ba- at Baylor, I was able to be with Nick Worse because Nick hosted me as a very nervous student, you know, seeking where God is leading me next. And there's one gathering that there are other students that are applying, other students that are coming to visit the program, and current students. And then this one current student started bragging about every single student I've hosted got an accepted to Baylor University. And I'm just like, well, come on, Nick, tell me your statistic. And he starts with this. The office administrator told me not to tell this. And then he says, no one has ever gone and accepted and stayed with me. I'm just like, you just ruined and cursed me. Or like, you know, um, I was like, well, come on, am I staying with the right guy? Can I like sleep on the streets now? I mean, yeah. But um, Nick was very kind and gracious to me and helped me through this very nerve-wracking process. I'm very happy to say that I'm at Baylor University right now. I'm pursuing my Ph.D. Well, um, Nick said a little bit about you, but let me tell it from my perspective. So, um, from the name Kazuyuki Hayashi, you can probably guess that I'm not really American. Um, actually, I once introduced myself as, hey, my name is Kazuyuki Hayashi, and one girl was like, I feel like fighting. I'm like, okay, calm down. Yeah, I only know some karate, okay? Um, but, you know, so if that's a hard name for y'all to remember, Kaz, I like to say be Kaz, be like me. Or, you know, you can call me, you know, Mr. Page, you can call me, you know, um, any honorific, professor is cool, your royal highness is something I really like, but I really especially enjoy sensei, um, to be your master. But, uh, I was born and raised in Japan, uh, my dad... Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's cool. And I was born and raised in Japan. Uh, my mother was a faithful Christian, and my, I actually had a dad that was a scientist. And... You know, um, it, it, for those who feel like, you know, what kind of impact you can have on faith, my mother's really a, at, attestations to faithfulness of the Lord. Because um, in my long family history, my mother is the first one ever to become a Christian. She's the first one ever. And these goes, I, as far as I can, over 100 years of my family history, no one has ever heard and received the gospel of Jesus Christ. And my mother was the very first one. And we, I have two brothers and a sister. You know what they're doing? My older brother was a pastor in Canada for many years and felt God calling him to Japan. And he's a missionary in Japan as well as a pastor. My younger brother is also a pastor in St. Louis area. He's actually a music minister, a very gifted music minister. Um, and my younger sister is, in fact, teaching at a Christian school in Japan, uh, teaching elementary and kindergarten and education. So you can really see how much gospel impact that one seed can have. And here I am, you know, teaching about the Word of God. And so there are things that you would never expect that God can do. So um, I want to attest to that. I am married. I know I look young. 
often when I'm in the, at Baylor, people think like I'm an undergrad student and, you know, I'm walking around with my pregnant wife and people are like, oh, yo, what happened there? You know, but um, I'm married um, happily to my wife, um, Laura Hayashi, and um, here are two of my daughters and my older one, her name is Emmy, she's six years old, um, she likes, she loves elephants. Um, she always wants me to tell people that. And this is my younger daughter, Elena, who is um, almost turning four. And like I said, I have another one on the way. Um, this is my younger sister, Chrissy. This is my um, younger brother that I talked about that's a music minister, um, Jonathan. So I often get the comment that I look like the baby in the family. Um, so I, I have no complaints at this moment. Um, and I have um, been able to have these wonderful opportunities to receive biblical education, and God has been really, has really blessed me and um, allowing me to go to these different programs and, you know, Moody Bible Institute in downtown Chicago, as well as um, Trinity and Baylor, and I've studied the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament in its original language, um, as well as archaeology. And um, I'm also acting an adjunct professor with Moody Bible Institute. I teach in their online program. And the classes that I actually teach are classes and the things that you are you're going to hear tonight on the archaeological and the ancient background of the Bible, um, as well as the history of the, of the land of Israel and how knowing these, his, these historical, um, these geographical and these archaeological things can really enliven, not only enliven and excite the way that we read scripture, because sometimes I know that you, you go to a sermon or Bible study and you say, I've heard the, a lesson on the Ten Commandments hundreds of times. I can list the Ten Commandments. But sometimes by realizing the culture that it came out from, how the Ten Commandments in the Bible is drastically different from the command, similar commandments we see from the ancient world can really enliven and make you realize um, the things that the scripture is saying for, uh, in a new, fresh way for the first time. And th those are moments that I really love. Um, also, I think knowing the different things about the Bible um, really gives confidence to the believers. That they can say, wow, you know, the, I never knew th that the Bible was some intersective history, that there's so many things in here that you can be confident about. Um, there, there are these ways that really, really, I think, archaeology and the ancient world can, can encourage believers in the church. So I'm very, very honored to be here. So like Nick said, I am an archaeologist. Um, one, when I say I'm an archaeologist, I get confident. One of them is, have, do you ever see dinosaur bones? Um, archaeology is a study of hum human beings so, um, and human culture remains, so I don't dig dinosaurs. I let the paleontologists do that work. So, but what does an archaeologist do, right? Um, so this is a picture of me just from the summer from, this, from the site of Tel Shimon in Israel. Um, I know Tel Shimon is a place that probably you haven't ever heard of. I mean, it actually only appears once in the Old Testament, in the book of Joshua, and it mentions that a king who lived in the land of Joshua, uh, in the land of Israel during this time, opposing the Israelites, is where the site Shimon appears. But it's actually located in the um, Jezreel Valley. Um, it's actually northern Israel, close to the site of Nazareth and um, the Sea of Galilee. But I'll point it out later with a map. Um, and here is me digging um, what you can see right there is actually an intact vessel. A vessel, I know it looks cracked and everything, but this once laid in com completely, and because of pressure of dirt, it was cracked. Who wants to take a guess at what might have been in there? Wine? That's a good guess. You know, um, that, that is something very common in the land of Israel, right? It, it, you, you do find wine all the time. Not quite wine here. Anyone else? Take Blood. a guess. What? Blood. Closer. You're surprisingly closer. Water? Not quite water. So, one thing that you're going to find, and you're going to think this is nuts. Um, this is, um, I'm digging a site that dates to the Middle Bronze Age. Um, I'm gonna, and one of the purpose for today's lesson is that I want to give everyone a framework because I'll be using terms like Middle Bronze Age, Late Bronze Age, and you're like, that sounds good, but I don't know when is middle and when's late. 
Um, you know, I'm going to give you a framework of the chronology, the general timeline of the of the Bible in the ancient world in Israel, and I'm also going to give you a framework of the geography of where is Israel and how how knowing geography matters. So this is going to be in the land of Israel in the Middle Bronze Age. The Middle Bronze Age is about 2000 BC to 1500 BC, give or take 4,000 years ago. So what I'm digging right there is about 4,000 years old, give or take. During that time, people used to bury things under their house. And what they buried in that, in that period, and this is very specific and unique to the Middle Bronze Age, is infants. In there, we found infant bones. Why might you think people would bury infants? Why? Why? Not quite. When, the notion of cemetery is a location dedicated for burial. Is that correct? You know, there usually wouldn't be other things at a cemetery. It's a location for specific people. They actually buried it under their houses. You know. Um, so, even from this, you actually start seeing that something's interesting. Because this, this um, burial practice actually dies out after this period. You can already see that people deeply care about their babies. The notion of remembering a child who lost its life and didn't get to um, live, it, live, live it to the full. Infant mortality rate, do you think it was very high at that time? Yes. Very. I mean, one in two won't, won't live to see five years old. In that time, do you think that death and afterlife was something very important to them? When life and death was all around you. There are all these in backgrounds that we, we start even seeing with a simple burial just like this. And things that are buried along with the baby and you know how they celebrate it and how how people perceive their life now in the life and the afterlife. All these things are starting to become a question that we ask when we find simple things like this. Just one discovery. Um, this one, we actually haven't found anything. Usually, they, um, there are other burials that came from this area that I was excavating. Um, a lot of things was, um, we found juvenile, juveniles maybe like five-year-olds, right? We found a juvenile um, burial, and we found um, at this time, common things to bury with them was little jars. And probably in the jars, they put like, you know, water or something. It's almost kind of the idea of like giving something precious to them. We found other burials that had bracelets on, so something precious to them. Um, I, know, I know this is not something that I personally dug up, but one thing that I read that was very, that, that as a parent of a five, four or five year old that really touched my heart was there, were, there was a toy that a child would have probably liked playing with. Um, so you can, you can know that as a parent, or even like thinking about um, burial practices. You bury something that might have been dear for them. Or, um, yes. So, so this is Telstromon Excavations. It's an uh, excavation affiliated with Wheaton College in Chicago and Tel Aviv University in Israel. And I want to talk to you about how uh, excavation happens. It's because um, we start out by finding a location. And one question I usually get is, how do you decide where to dig? Do you just start digging there, over there, way there? How do we find these things? One thing that we know is um, we rely on like the Bible, which remembers locations in, in it. Uh, we also rely on other written documents from the ancient world that mentions different sites. And the site of Shimron is one of the largest sites in the land of Israel from this period, from the Middle Bronze Age. It was a powerful center with humongous rampart walls um, defending its, its city. So um, from these things we can see, and also, and sometimes when you walk around, when you take a stroll, you look around and you start realizing different features. You can be like, oh, there might have once been a house built there, right? You see a foundation of a house. I was taking a walk the other day with my kids and I was like, I swear that this concrete slab that we see in this um, park must have been a toilet once, once in time, once, once ago. Um, so um, in similar ways, archaeologists walk around the land spotting different features that are, um, that are still present in this day. And we start saying, like, this seems like, if you have a line of rocks, you'd be like, it seems like a wall. There must have been a wall that was here once upon a time. And different things. Um, 
And I would like to say that you're going to, I will show you a progression of what happened just this summer. You see here, we start digging a little bit, and soon we start coming to a lot of rocks. And right now it just looks like a bunch of rocks, and you're right, it looks like a bunch of rocks. But if you can even focus on this rock and this rock over there, after, after two months, those rocks that you saw became these. You can already tell that we're probably about, you know, three to five feet down um, in dirt. And a lot of archaeology, yes, sometimes we use tiny little tools to do fine work. But a lot of it is we're using pickaxes to remove dirt, to um, expose things as much, uh, fast as we can. Um, and I'd like to ask you to focus on this stones that you see right here. Because at the end of the season, after two months, it looked like this. Those rocks that you saw is where that girl was sitting right there. We went down probably about 1.5 meters or maybe about 6 to 7 feet. Um, and we found the very bottom. So, what started out as these tiny rocks that we, we, we found, by, keep by, by uh, continual effort of digging, we came to this. We found out that those bunch of rocks actually formed a wall right here. We had another wall right here and a wall right there. Um, will some people have a guess as to what these standing stones are? What does it look like? What, what do these standing stones look like to you, right there? Maybe support, like a support. It could be, yes, yes. That's, that's a very good guess. So you can see that they're set up in intervals, right? Yeah. So what this actually is, is these are forming windows. Yeah, so you can see that it's a little bit elevated on the wall, like that, what we see here. And it's like having pillars right there. Does it make sense? And once we take out this, um, this board right here, what are you going to see? You're going to probably see wood up going up and down supporting. So this is what we see right now. It's the infrastructure of the, wind, of the wall and the window that we were able to uncover. And this, everything you see right here, dates to the time of Jesus Christ. It's, it belongs to the Roman period. Very exciting finds. And people ask and can ask me sometimes, what kind of stuff do you find, Kaz, on the excavation? Um, what are the coolest things you found? Um, I can tell you that things that you find is this boy holding right here. That is a coin. That is an ancient coin. It's a coin from the Roman period that is really exciting for us because we can tell exactly when these coins date. Just like if you find a coin now, you kind of can guess when these, these come from. Um, are they working <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So what? <laughs> Are they worth anything? Um, yes. So here's the thing. When we dig as an archaeologist, we don't get to keep anything. So it's all for research. Um, so no one ever keeps or takes anything back once you dig. Nothing. No. It's, um, there's actually antiquity laws that protect materials. It's like, you know, let's say someone in America comes to America, starts digging, and say they found something that belonged to John Thomas Jefferson. And they're like, this is cool, let me take it back to Israel. Mm -hmm. I, you know that the American public will say, that's a treasure, it's part of history, it's part of who we are as a nation, you cannot take it away. So it, there's a very similar way that it's thought in Israel. Yes? One more question. So, King Tut's treasures, they keep any of that? So, um, there are different antiquity laws that change over time. Egypt, the very beginning of the excavations, they had a rule that they did 50-50. Now, I don't know a single country that has excavations that allow anyone to pretty much take anything back, other than for research purposes. There, there's a reason why we have these laws today. Yes, because for example, um, so here's one thing that happens that a lot of people don't know. How many people are aware of ISIS? ISIS? Yes. ISIS, yeah. ISIS was the Islamic radical group yes. that, um, that, you know, that's connected with various terrorism activities in the U.S., in Europe, and all around the world. Do you know what, one of the main ways that they made their income? Selling those. They raided archaeological sites and sold it to the black market. And those money that, that they made, they bought weapons of destruction. They use, and not only that, um, by looting objects, they're 
they were destroying history of that country. They destroyed a whole lot. They did. Um, there, there are many sites, treasures of the world, that UNESCO World, the UNESCO World Heritage sites. That everyone has agreed that this is humanity's treasure has been destroyed by these terrorist groups. So, I go to see the movie uh, National Treasure. Yes, yes. So, if somebody found that type of treasure, they would. I mean, they would get nothing of that. Nothing, no. No, it will be returned. So, you know, the, 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 the field of archaeology is not really Indiana Jones, where Indiana Jones kind of take it, throw it in his bag, you know, you know, shooting guns. You know, I, I don't do too much of that when I'm in Israel. You know, I think I'll get in trouble, I mean, with the IDF, you know, Israeli Defense Force, if I did that. But, yes, um, but just to answer your question, probably something like that would cost about 100 bucks if you would buy it in a legal um, auction or something that is legally sold. Yes. It depends because um, it depends on how good the quality is, right? They're not old coins like you know. You probably can pull up your wallet and be like, "Hey, this coin, you can see the face of Abraham Lincoln. This this coin looks flat." You know, you know. Um, for uh, those conditions, actually matter um, on how these things are, as well as how popular that kind of coin is. This coin is everywhere. You, this is one of the most common coins. Let's say it's a penny. Um, uh, so there are things like that that changes and influences the worth of objects. Also, we find bones. I did that for animal or human bones. Um, the one that you see right here belongs to a horse. Um, so it was a, it was a excavation thing, uh, thing that they were carefully excavating. We also find pottery. Lots and lots and lots of pottery. And I actually brought some examples here for you. Um, so you can come up here, you can touch it, you can look at it, um, and um, talk about it. So the, the thing is, pottery was everywhere. What happened to not take anything home? So, here's the thing. So, there are the, it's, so yes, there, there are laws protecting these, and these were not found in an excavation. Does it make sense? This is not found in an excavation. This is, these are things that are basically like, um, basically the valley of a rock in the land of Israel. Um, so those, those things are, you, you know, fine. And um, I actually got a permit to take things out from the excavation. So, um, yes, there, so there's some things that matter, some things that don't matter. Yeah. Um, but, so you can feel free to touch it, look at it. Um, and you're going to find a lot of pottery because pottery was everywhere. Because everyone, you know, your plate that you use on a daily basis, your bowls that you use to... Um, to store water because water they didn't have you know good running water system mm -hmm. if you wanted water what do you need to store it yeah so water was everything where it was necessary and to keep water you need pottery so pottery you find everywhere and pottery is very important actually for archaeologists and the reason why is by looking at the pottery and there are different pottery you can tell roughly when when something dates to so, how many people like cars here? Like what? Cars. cars? Okay. Some people. Okay. Um, how many people have seen an iPhone? Yeah. Can you tell an iPhone X versus an iPhone 4? Yeah. Yeah, some people are like, yeah. Okay, it looks different, right? Um, can you tell, uh, let's say, a 1970s Mustang versus a 2000-something Mustang? Yeah. Okay. Forms change. There are forms that become popular, and there, become, there are forms that become unpopular. And you, what you see right here is the evolution and the development of pottery. By looking at this, I can guess that everything you see here belongs about 1,000 to probably 500 BCE um, in, in that period. Um, I know the fact that if I look at this, <coughs> Can anyone guess what kind of type of wear that is? It's so a little bit harder. Where was it? So, these are all found from the land of Israel. Oh, okay. But, what does, can anyone give a guess? Does anyone know any form of, this is one of the most po popular, most famous form of pottery from Greece, called Attic wear. Yeah, so if you, if anyone's seen, um, you know, any Greek mythology and stuff, this is the type of pottery. This is Greek work. This is from the Hellenistic period. This is going to be 
um, especially in the land of Israel. This, this is going to indicate to you that this is about 300 BCE to, you know, right to the Roman period. And everything that I see right here looks like the Roman period um, from the time of Jesus Christ. <coughs> from just, so, you're going to say, how can you tell? For me, it's the different colors, the different, the different wear that they're putting, the pictures that they have, the different design, um, the different, and once you start looking at these things, you start noticing that the quality is even different. Um, and you can start dating things. So I will come over here, and I will say, I'll look at this. And I'll say, this, what? So this is a handle of a pottery. This was probably made during the Roman period. <clears throat> I can tell because of these grooves that are very, very characteristic, very high quality, almost cleans when you hit it. This is a Roman pottery. This one right here, this design is very distinctive of the Islamic period. So we're talking about like Crusader period in the history, 1,300 AD or something. So this is 1,300 AD. This is probably the Roman period. 30 BCE, probably to like the 300. I'll look at something like this. And I'll say, look at this coloration. And if you look very closely, you can actually see lines of how they use their hand to burnish this. This is going to date to the Middle Bronze Age. This is about 1,500 uh, 1, or 2,000 BCE. And I can start laying things down. The oldest piece in here is this piece that you see. And you can come and look at it and touch this. This is fine. This piece, this coloration, this quality of pottery, I'll look at this and I say this belongs to the early Bronze Age, about 3,000 BCE. So from here, I, this belongs to the Iron Age, from the time of the typical Old Testament um, kings about 1,000 BCE to like 500 BCE. I, I can look at these pottery and I can start saying this belongs to the Iron Age, this belongs to this period. This, this is a very distinct design popular in the Middle Bronze Age. Pottery, you can, once you train your eyes on archeologists, you can see simple things as pottery and start dating them to different periods. So let me allow to give, give kind of like an overview of um, dates. Um, I'll be using the word BC. Um, BC stands for before Christ, and AD is not after death. Um, that's a very common thing that people believe in. Yeah. You know, so like, oh, AD, after yeah. death, so it's got to be like, you know, Jesus was 30 years old, it starts with 30? You know, no, so um, anno, uh, it's actually from a Latin term, anno domini, like the year of our Lord is what it means. Um, and I would like to also add to the, to the knowledge that a lot of people think BC or like let's say the year zero. What do you think the year zero is? The year Jesus is born. Year, year Jesus is born, right? Okay, that is the most common misconception that I actually uh, that I commonly hear. Uh, don't don't blame yourself. That everyone thinks that. Jesus, um, historians have noticed that Jesus was probably give or take at least three years old by the time of zero, the year zero. So Jesus is actually before, born before the year of our Lord. Um, and so he was probably born, born about 3 BC, three years before Christ is probably when he was born. Um, I know, it's like messing with your head right now, right? But um, just know that but it's a convention, a tradition that uh, was started and it became popular, so we still stick with it. But just know that Jesus was born before zero, the year zero. Um, and, yeah. Okay. Zero. What made what made let's see, can I really, how can I how you mean how did people figure out when Jesus was born and everything? No, 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 no. Why did it change from BC to AD? Okay, no yes. Yes, so um, all of this actually began quite early with um, early church like church historians. We're trying to figure out the year of, um, of calling years, and that's when these things date to. It dates to um, over a thousand years old practices now. But through um, more study of history, we found out that when Herod was born and when Herod the Great died. Okay, Herod the Great dies about, I, is, it, is it 30 or 30? I forget to remember. I can't remember the precise year. But Herod, Herod, the, Herod is dead by, I think, two... 
BC. That's what it is. Herod the Dead dies right around then. at 2 BC. So you know that Jesus must have been born before Herod died. Based on the Bible. So that's how it came about. It was the historians really paying careful attention to um, different documents that are coming out, and they found out when Herod was born and dead. And by knowing when Herod was born and dead, we know as a fact that Jesus must have been born before the death of Herod. So that's, in, that's the reason how they figured out like there is some inconsistency in, commonly, in common thought. Yeah, very great question, actually. So in the ancient world, you used to date things relative to the king in power. In the second year of Caesar, Augustus, or in the 40th year, but that means you kind of restart the dating with each new king in power. And that's why it gets really complicated because, you know, the fourth year of this king's reign over here is equal to the tenth year of that king's reign over here. And it depends on where you are. So it was around, I believe, about the Middle Ages or so when some monks got together and were trying to kind of date back. And, well, they were off by, you know, four years, three years. So, so. when did it, it, it become universal? So this method of dating actually is only universal in the Christian West, really. If you go to the Islamic world, they have a similar dating system, but it's not based on uh, the birth of Christ. It's based on Muhammad's visions. Mm-hmm. Everything's relative to that. And if you uh, use a traditional um, Jewish dating, then it's dating relative to creation based upon sort of a biblical chronology. Um, and so I forget what year they're in, 6,000-something or whatever, um, which is you know, kind of based upon the biblical stories and how they present yeah. things. Yeah. And Japan actually still date their years by the emperor's birthday. So it's going to be this generation of emperor, and we actually just entered a new year, like um, just this past year in Japan. Um, that being said, we still use these, um, you know, 2,000-something. <laughs> um, I also like to say that when I say like the 8th century, we think, um, so let's say the 8th century is the years running up to the 800th century is hundreds. So um, 8th century is the 700s, right? So right now, which century are we in? When do we say this? 21st century, but we're not 2,100 something, right? We're in the year 2019. We're going up to that century. So um, this is going to be pretty common and easy for you to understand. So I'm going to talk about what archaeologists use. Um, We have this archaeological chronology, and I'm going to correlate that with the biblical chronology for you because I think that's what's important. I want everyone coming out from here to know roughly when these periods are and how we think about the passing of time when we study the Bible. Um, I've talked about the Middle Bronze Age already. It was about 2000 BC to 1500 BC. But um, we usually in the biblical scholarship talk about before the monarchy, so pre-monarchic period. Monarchy means kings, and who was some of the first kings in the, in the land of Israel? Saul. Saul. That was a trick question. Fantastic. Saul. And the next king is? Our beloved David. Yes. So, the pre-monarchic period stands for the period that preceded these kings. Um, And it usually correlates to these three um, ages, archaeological chronology. Middle Bronze Age, uh, Late Bronze Age, and the Iron Age. And I'm going to talk a little bit more in detail about this. Um, And roughly... These, the content, okay, I'm going to talk about the content of these biblical narratives, roughly correlates to this time. When I say the content, I'm going to say, when you read the Bible, when is this biblical book portraying itself to be when it was written? Because not always the date that it was written is always the same as when it portrays it to be. I know that's, that sounds convoluted, but the book of Genesis, it appears to be it presents its content to roughly to the Middle Bronzes. Actually, Abraham, if we had to take a stab at when he was active, it's going to be roughly 1900 BCE. So, the biblical patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they were all probably um, um, in the biblical narrative portraying it as belonging to this Middle Bronze Age. And I'm going to point to a few facts that actually does seem like there's some genuine memory that are correct in in these texts. The pre-monarchic period, also the Late Bronze Age. The Late Bronze Age is the time of Moses. Just think of Moses, the great um, figure from the Exodus. Um, The Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. It seems like all these books and the stories that are taking place in this, the biblical author will place it in this Late Bronze Age period, about 1500 BCE to 1200 BCE. Yes? 
my question is that, okay, most of the stories after before a certain time was all verbal, passed on. There had to be, yes, oral memory. So when did the writing age of that, 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 that this was start getting written? When was this? So there are different debates about this. So let me talk about writing and period. Writing period. So historians like to say this is from the prehistoric period. What they mean prehistoric is, it's a technical term actually. It doesn't mean very old. It, it can't. But prehistoric, the right way to know when something is prehistoric is before writing was invented. Writing began in the land of Egypt as well as the land of Mesopotamia, and I'm going to show you pictures of it. And it goes back <coughs> to 3000 BCE. 3000 is the earliest form of writing that we have. So, technically, that precedes the Middle Bronze Age. We're talking about the Early Bronze Age is when the writing, uh, writing develops. And not only that, um, where does Abraham come from? Does anyone remember? Is he an Israelite? fascinates me and I keep coming back to it, that there's this theme of someone coming from the outside, far away. Because um, the people of Israel, how the Bible portrays it, are they're coming from a far away land, from the land of Mesopotamia, I'll show you pictures later, um, all the way to the land of Israel. So in that way, the Mesopotamia was the center of writing at that time. In fact, the universal language. Right now, English is a universal language. You can go to almost any country and find something in English, including in Japan. The universal language at that time was Akkadian. There was a language called Akkadian that, the that was active, uh, actively used in Mesopotamia. And it seems like um, he does come from this general area from where um, writing must have existed. So is there a possibility that there's some form of writing that was written to record these memories in some way. It's very possible. The Bible does, just doesn't really speak about it. Um, in fact, does anyone know when writing is first mentioned in the Bible? Hmm. Well, Moses wrote something on the tablet. It's Moses. It oh. is Moses. The first... It's actually before the Ten Commandments. Um, um, the first time I believe that writing is referenced is something like Exodus 14 or something. But God actually tells um, Moses to write things down, like his words down. And Ten Commandments and all of that is part of this narrative, right? So the first time ever that, that writing is attested, um, according to the Bible, is about the time of Moses, which belongs to this, to the late Bronze Age in Exodus and these stories of Exodus and Exodus numbers. Um, so... The earliest time that we could really have the composition of the Bible, according to biblical witness, is this period of the late bronzes and Exodus and Exodus numbers. Um, so, well, anyways, in following the late bronzes, it's the Iron Age. Um, Iron Age divides into one and two in different periods, but Iron Age one belongs to Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. So we kind of, this sounds natural, right? It's like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. We're going through the, the, basically the list of biblical books. So the chronology of this, of this is, roughly correlates to the chronology and sequence of the books that we have in the Bible. Okay, yeah, did you want to ask a question? But they had other ways of not really writing it, you know it today. Yes, at that time, oral memory was something very common. But they, they still have a way to, like, drawing and stuff like that. Yes, there is drawings. Yeah, drawing is... But that was a form of writing before that year. Um, I see where you're coming from, yes. Um, there's this debate about the development of language and how did it happen, right? Did it start with pictographs and stuff? Technically, yes. Um, but not every language started like that. Actually, Akkadian is not. The earliest writing that we have is called Sumerian, and these, it's called these cuneiform. It didn't start with pictures. So, um, Egyptian, yes, Egyptian hieroglyphs actually kind of starts out with pictures, but a misconception with Egyptian hieroglyphs is that it's a pictorographical language, every sign is a picture, that's actually false. 
we know that it's not. Some, some letters are like our, our alphabet. It's, it's a syllable, you know. So it's a very complex writing system. Um, but anyway, let us go on. So let me talk about the Middle Bronze Age. The Middle Bronze Age is the time of powerful Canaanites. So this is what we read in the Bible. When, when Abraham enters the land, he, it, it doesn't say he came to the land of Israel. It says that he came to the land of Canaan. And an interesting thing is when you start reading the book of, the book of Genesis, and when he comes to the land of, land of Canaan, he never stays within a city. He actually always stays at the outskirts of city. And some people be like, well, why not? Isn't it more comfortable than being in an urban environment? You know, isn't it more comfortable to be within walls instead of being outside somewhere random? Well, we're going to find out that during this period, archaeologists have discovered that the Middle Bronze Age is characterized by very, very powerful city-states. When I say city-states, it means each city had its own governance, it had its own humongous fortification walls. They did not like outsiders, to say the least. Um, it, it is this very interesting time. The palaces appear for the first time in the land of Canaan, too. Large palaces. And we start seeing different weapons that are happening. There are a lot of wars that are happening between these different cities. So, it, so we see that there's, a, there's this idea. And in the book of Genesis, whenever there is a famine, where, what happens? Where does Abraham go? Abraham runs away to the land of Egypt. Whenever there's a famine, Abraham leaves the land to go to Egypt. It seems like Egypt, remember, it's called, um, they have a Nile, a constant flowing river that allowed them to have water perpetually, even in a time of drought. So, um, we actually, this is, uh, this is a scene from a cycle of Beni Hassan in Egypt, coming from this period of the, the Middle Bronze Age. And um, we know from written records that during the 17th century, so 1600s BCE, there were people known as the Hyksos, and that came to power in the land of Egypt. And the more we study the Hyksos, there, it's a fascinating story. The people of Hyksos were not Egyptians. We had the time of the Hyksos in Egypt where non-Egyptians Asiatics, Asiatics or Semites, people from give or take the land of Israel around this area, came down to Egypt, took over Egypt, and had power and ruled over the Egyptian. What's interesting about that when we think about the Bible? Same question What's interesting about this fact that we know historically that Egypt was at one time not ruled by Egyptians? Do we see something? You see something in the Bible that sounds familiar there? Well, Egypt, like the like the Canaanites, was the land God promised to the Israelites. So they yeah, were, right. They didn't always live there. There were people conquering. Yeah. During that time, like taking land or. Yes, you do see actually like different Canaanite cities coming together to fight against Abraham and Lot. There's that Bible story there. That's very interesting when you think about it. It seems like these different sites are different. You, you're talking about uh, Abraham staying on the outskirts of the city. Lot goes into the city. Yes. And what happens? He ends up getting sucked into one of their wars. Right. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it seems like this, and there's some interesting memory and background that are authentic to some of these narratives. Um, who knows Joseph? Who is Joseph? <laughs> yeah. One of, Abraham's, Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac had a son, Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons that becomes the 12th tribe. One of his name is Joseph. Where does he rule? In Egypt. So we know from the Bible, the Bible talks about a memory of the Israelites, actually all the Israelites at that time, or the tribe of Jacob, you know, they're quite not people who regret. The people, the sons of Jacob, they all moved down to Egypt, and it talks about this memory of somehow Joseph, a non-Egyptian, becoming a very, very powerful person within this period, roughly around the same time. So all of these things 
seems to start correlating or seems to indicate that there, there are some ways that the Bible is talking about these historical memories and realities that were happening. Um, Yes, yes. So in the, in the Bronze Age, because you, you know, like the Israel, like a tribe, this group of people that yes. grew together. But when you think about Egypt, they had like a government. They did. So is this the time where people started? Like I know at one point, Israel didn't have a king. Yes. Then they wanted a king because yes. everybody else had a king. Fantastic. So is this yeah. the time where people start developing governments and ruling over people and? Maybe that's how they were conquering land. Yes. So is that, is that middle form of age? So, I like to say that they're good questions, and they're excellent questions. Excellent question, because it's exactly where I was going to go. Um, the Middle Bronze Age, not so much. Middle Bronze Age is still the time of city-states, like I talked about. The next period is called um, the Late Bronze Age. The Late Bronze Age, like you said, Egypt is still a powerful country. Actually, Egypt succeeds in kicking out the Hyksos, the non-Egyptian rulers, and they become a powerful nation. They always have been, but especially the late Bronze Age, they're extremely powerful. Powerful to a point that they take control of the land of Canaan slash Israel. And you actually see this. Does this look Egyptian to you? Okay, it kind of looks, you know, it doesn't look American, right? You know, it doesn't look Japanese to me either. So, this, believe it or not, this Stele, it's this monumental, um, um, uh, a monumental relief, comes from the land of Israel. It was erected in a site called Beth Shan, which was one of the Egyptian garrisons. It was their control sites, the strategic places that the Egyptians placed to control the land of Israel. And during this time of the height of the Egyptian power comes the Exodus narrative. The Exodus narrative. We remember at this time that the Israelites were not in the land of Israel, but in the land of Egypt. And um, then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built peace on the Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. This Exodus, and this is what it says in Exodus. So the site named Ramses <clears throat> is named after an Egyptian pharaoh, Ramses also known as Ramses the Great. So, um, the, Ram the, the city of Ramses actually is found archaeologically. And the, the city of Ramses was built during the time of Ramses the Great as his new capital, which he named after himself. And it's fantastic what we find archaeologically from this period. Also, um, one thing that they talk about is, um, can, would someone be willing to read this passage for me? They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. Great. Sometimes when we think about the, Egyptian, uh, the Israelites working in the land of Egypt, some people think they were built in pyramids. Well, pyramids were still being built at that time, but the biblical text is very clear on what kind of job they did. Harsh with brick and mortar. Um, this right here that you see, that is mud brick construction from the land of Egypt, and do you know what this place is called? It's a, it's a site called, uh, it's a building called the Ramesseum. It was constructed by Ramses the Great as um, his possible um, burial site. And the Ramesseum indeed had brick constructions. So, um, it's interesting, we, the biblical text in the Exodus is talking about a real site that existed exactly during the late Bronze Age, about a pharaoh that re exactly lived in, the, in this period, and it describes these, it's kind of like these um, constructions that actually um, we know that did exist from this period. Um, so, we, the, these biblical narratives are really interesting. And let me go to your question right now. You talked about when did people start becoming a nation. Okay. The people of Israel are still not a nation in the book of Judges, right? They're different tribes at this point. Israel never becomes a nation until the monarchic period. That's why local historians make a big deal of the monarchy. But this is the very first extra-biblical reference outside of the Bible when the, land, or the people of Israel, the land of Israel, is ever mentioned. So, this is called the Meren Ptastele. It's from the land of Egypt. And it dates to right into the, in between the transition between the late bronzes and Iron Age. 
And let me explain why that's important. The Late Bronze Age, I said, is the time of Egyptian power. They control the land of Canaan. What happens is at the end of the Late Bronze Age, Egypt gets weak. Egypt loses control over the land of Israel. And for the first time in history, the Israelites are able to take control of the land because there's not this overpowering Egyptian. I mean, it's, it, um, the Egyptians withdraw from the land of Israel, and it's very clear from the archaeological record that the Egyptians are gone from, at this period. And for the first time at that time, at that juncture, that crucial historical juncture, we find that the people of Israel is mentioned. Yes? Maybe um, I, I heard a long time ago that the Bronze Age and the Iron Age also is reference to the use of metal at the time. That, 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 yes. That they were using bronze, then they came to start using iron and everything also, right? Yes. So, so, so do you find yeah. those, did you find those in, in your archaeological excavation? Yes. So one of the coolest finds that we I had this past year to witness is I was working in the Bronze Age, and for the, we, for the first time in my life, we discovered a furnace. And the furnace wasn't like just for baking bread. This was actually, we found signs of copper production. This was the fifth time ever such a thing has been found in the land of Israel from the Middle Bronze Age. It was the fifth example. Um, so it's quite rare to find something like that, but yes, we actually do find sites in the land of Israel that was used for metallurgy, you know, producing different types of um, metals for tools. Yeah? So, like in the Iron Age or the Bronze Age, um, do they start making, you said tools, weapons, were there carriages and stuff? Were those still like wood or...? Yes, okay. So carriages are an interesting phenomenon that happens. Um, <clears throat> one of the first times we see it is actually during the Late Bronze Age from Egypt. We also see it from Mesopotamia. Um, and the Bible actually has interesting references to carriages. Um, it sounds like some, for some reason the Israelites weren't supposed to have carriages. The Canaanites had in carriages. There's one of the most famous battles of between like Deborah and the king of Hazor in the book of Judges. The, the one thing that you find out is like the king of Hazor has chari um, chariots at this time. Mm -hmm. So at this time we already see it. Um, does anyone know who King Tut is or Tutankhamun? Yeah. King Tut, um, someone mentioned about the great treasures that he yeah. found um, because it's one of the very few examples of an intact Egyptian tomb. In the mm, treasures, there, is a, there was an example, an intact example of a carriage at that time. So, we do find those very rarely, but they do find them in the archaeological record. Yes. Um, anyway, sorry, this is taking way more time than uh, I thought it would. So, we got about 10 minutes. 10 minutes. So, we're talking about the Iron Age and the discovery of um, the first reference to the people of Israel, which is really exciting for us. Let me go into the monarchic period. So, now we're entering into the time of our, our kings. We're not only talking about Saul, David, Solomon, who represents the united monarchy when Israel was one nation under God. Um, but after the time of Solomon, the kingdom of Israel splits into half because there was a rivalry between two kingdoms that ends up happening. The north is going to be called Samaria, and the uh, south is going to be called Judah. So, the time of the monarchic period covers everything from the time of Saul, the first king of Israel, to the very ending when they get um, um, sacked by the powerful kingdom of Babylon. So, we're talking about the Iron Age 2, which covers 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. So let's go into this. Iron Age 2 is a very exciting <coughs> period for archaeologists. The reason is because it is probably the most well-attested period archaeologically. Because this is the time when we have solid, undeniable references to biblical characters, especially these kings that we read in the Bible. Few generations back, I'm talking about maybe 20, 30 years ago, there was a very big debate within the biblical scholarship in the archaeological world. And a very famous scholar once said, King David is as mythical as King Arthur. And he said that there was no way in heaven 
or no way in a million years that David actually existed. So this was a challenge to the traditional way of viewing scripture and seeing, uh, seeing the word of God. Because if King David is fake, who else can be fake? What else can be fake in the Bible, right? Well, King, this, this debate was silenced with this single archaeological find. It's very, very rare to find these kind of big, big rare finds in archaeology. Like I said, most of the time we're finding <coughs> pottery, which is basically ancient trash. Um, but here is the first extra <coughs> reference to David. Actually says the house of David, and it comes from a period a little bit later from King David himself. But we know, even from reading the Bible, that the, the people, the descendants of David, was continually called by this popular reference, by the house of David. So we have this first extra-biblical reference of one of Israel's finding, um, founding kings. Also, this is something called the Black Obelisk that is housed at the Great British Museum. You have to go to England to see the original. You can see um, facsimiles or copies of this in Chicago. Um, but here we find the first depiction, artistic depiction, of an Israelite king, or actually uh, any character from the Bible at all. Um, this is actually not from the land of Israel, but it was uh, um, from a very powerful nation at this time called Assyria. And in here, we find King Jehu from the Book of Kings paying homage to an Assyrian king. Um, so, but this, even though, you know, it seems like, you know, um, but this makes sense because Assyria was a powerful nation, and King Jehu was a king of the northern kingdom, and he was under the jurisdiction and control of the Assyrians. So, in this scene, it shows this Israelite king um, bowing down in deference to the Assyrian king. And also, I would like to add that, oh, I forgot to add that picture, within the past five years, so this is very new, some people say, isn't everything that needs to be discovered in archaeology discovered? Why dig? Why do spend all that time and money doing that thing? Well, um, I was going to add a picture. For the first time ever in history, we found, the archaeologists have found, a statue, not a statue, or a little figurine of an Israelite king from the land of Israel. This is extremely rare. It's, um, and the problem is, it's just the head of a, of a king. It's clearly found in the land of Israel. It's clearly royal. And we can't guess who it is exactly is. It could be a foreign king. It could be an Israelite king. But nothing like that has ever been found. And still, these things are coming out in um, excavations. So let me talk about the Babylonian period. Babylonian period is this exilic period. It's the time when the powerful nation of Babylon destroys the land of uh, the kingdom of Judah and exiles, like, deports the people into a faraway land. And in the Bible we read, the Babylonian um, Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiachin, one of the last kings of the land of Israel, um, captive to Babylon. And in 2 Kings 25, we read, day by day, the king gave Jehoiachin a regular allowance as long as he lived. We actually have an extra-biblical reference. This is uh, this little tablet right here. The, write down rations of food that was given to the captives of Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. And lo and behold, it says 7.0 liters, probably of oil, for Jehoiachin, king of the land of Judah. So the very thing that was written in the book of Second Kings, we have an undeniable parallel in writing from the land of Babylon where he was exiled himself. So these are very, very exciting things that really gives us our um, confidence in these biblical records. So the Persian period, this is the time when um, the people of Israel comes back to the land of Israel. And the most notable books are Ezra and Nehemiah that talks about the rebuilding of the land of Israel after the Israelites finally return to their home country, after many, spending many years in a foreign land. Um, and in Ezra chapter 1, it opens up with this. 
This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. This is the first king of the Persian Empire that destroys the Babylonians, the evil Babylonians that destroyed the, um, the, that took the Israelites captive. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel. Then it talks about um, Cyrus allowing them to say, okay, we also took these um, objects from the temple. You can take those back too. This is called the Cyrus Cylinder. It's a proclamation or an inscription written in commemoration of Cyrus the Great's act, action conquering the Babylonians. And it says this, I return the images of the gods who had resided there to their places, and I let them go on their eternal abodes. I gathered all their inhabitants and returned to them their dwellings. Does this sound like the book of Ezra that we just read right now? That, the people, that this king allowed the Israelites to return to their land to take their um, treasures from, that belonged to the temple. So we once again have these really interesting parallels from the Bible as well as outside of the Bible, these archaeological records that we're finding. Um, sorry, so um, I think I'm out of time with this. And I had some more things to, that I wanted to talk about, but we will have another lesson next, next week, I believe. So, so where, where are we looking at going for next week? Yeah. Yeah. Of course. So, um, so one thing that I was going to talk is let me talk a little bit about probably, um, I'm going to talk about the geography of the land of Israel. And I would also ask you to read the book of Joshua because I want to talk a little bit about Joshua as a test case of how we can use archaeology in different ways in that it influences our reading of scripture. Um, what part of Joshua? The book of Joshua, um, yeah, let's just read the first um, seven chapters. That'll be fine, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay, so, don't, okay, how about this? Read this Battle of Jericho. That's one chapter. The Battle of Jericho. And I'll point to different things um, on the way. But just to read the Battle of Jericho, that, that'll be a good one. I think it's Joshua. If we could, please, let's thank Kaz for coming, uh, not just tonight, but for the whole month, really. All right, would someone like to close us in prayer? Hello, my name is Lorenz, and I am a choir singer here at One Fellowship Church in Waco, Texas. Thank you for listening. You can learn more about our congregation online at onefellowshipumc.org. You can also like us on Facebook in order to stay up to date with the latest events and activities taking place in our community. Please feel free to share this message and others on social media so that more people can hear about what God is doing here at One Fellowship Church. Thank you and God bless.